Hello and welcome to UK Column. And today I'm not joined by just one guest, I'm joined by two. But before I introduce them, I've got a couple of things that I'd like to say. Firstly, my name is Debbie Evans and I'm a state registered nurse. I trained at the Royal Free Hospital back in 1976. I specialised in the operating department, endocrinology, and I also specialise in autism spectrum. And yes, you're right, I have to keep looking at my notes because I'm a dinosaur. Um, I've also got a, a PG cert in autism, and I got that at Birmingham University. I was a government advisor for the Department of Health on the Autism Programme Board for five years. And I was a junior researcher on hepatitis E with one of the world leading experts, Dr. Harry Dalton. So that's just who I am. Now in 2020, the UK government asked all of us to protect the NHS. And it's the NHS that we're going to talk about today. In 2023, my question to my two experts is are the government protecting the NHS? Are the government protecting the staff within the NHS? Are the government protecting patients? Is the NHS a jewel in our crown or is it a thorn in our side? Have we lost trust in the NHS trusts? And I've got with me two very well qualified experts. But before I introduce them, I just want to read you just a few cold facts that have come from the King's Fund. So the source and all of these statistics will be in the article that's beneath this interview. So from the King's Fund, in 2021 to 2022, the NHS employ 1.26 million full-time equivalent staff. The Department of Health budget is 190 billion. The admin bill is 2.7 billion. The total wage bill for the NHS is 66.2 billion. There are 141,960 consultant hospital beds. To go to an A&E appointment, it will cost the NHS between £86 and £418 per appointment. Each ambulance trip resulting in an admission to hospital will cost £367. Just for a call out will be £276. To have your appendix removed in the NHS will cost £3,409. If you have a fractured hip, it could cost anywhere in between £2,092 and six to £6,797. A nine-minute GP consultation costs £42. In March 2022, there were 140,000 doctors employed in the NHS and around 40,000 managers with 350,000 nurses. And on an average day in 2022, 1.2 million patients attended GP appointments, 260,000 attended outpatients appointments, 37,000 called 999, 44,000 attended A&E and of that 25% were admitted. And sadly, 675 were admitted to critical care. And our hospital beds have halved over the last 30 years. So I am going to be fascinated to be able to ask these questions about is the NHS safe and what is the future of the NHS to my two guests. So first of all, please let me introduce Roy Lilly. Roy is a health policy advisor. He's founder of Federation of NHS Trusts, which is now, by the way, the NHS Confederation. Roy writes an e-letter which goes out to over 300,000 healthcare managers here and overseas. And he also writes for The Guardian, Sunday Times, Telegraph, and so much more. Roy, at last, we welcome you back to UK Column. Thank you for agreeing to join us. Be here. Thank you very much. And also joining me today is Dr. Duncan White. Dr. Duncan White is a nursing care systems consultant. And starting as a registered nurse, he worked his way up to executive level in acute medicine psychiatry. He has worked with the Department of Health, the Department of Business, CQC, 
and the skills for care. And now, as if by magic, Duncan, welcome to UK Column. It's lovely to have you back. Pleasure. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. So now let's have this discussion and we're going to split into um, the screen where we can all see each other and we can all talk to each other. And I'd really like to start off, if I could, with Roy. Roy, can I start off with you first? Because as you were involved in the setting up of the Federation of NHS Trusts, my question is, have the public lost trust in trusts? Has that model uh, exceeded your expectations? Is it the vision you imagined? Or do you think it's spectacularly backfired, given what we're seeing today, which appears to be total collapse in the NHS? Okay, right. Well, we'll start, we'll start with the easy questions first, then. Um, right, what do I think? Well, look, if I, if I cast my mind back to when the, uh, the Thatcher reforms introduced um, NHS Trust, the reason they did it was to give Trust more operational freedom. They felt that uh, if the government got off their backs, they could get on and, and manage stuff a, a lot better. And that was true at the time. There was a huge amount of optimism amongst trust management. Um, and it was then that, of course, we started the Federation of NHS Trust, as you say, now it's become the CONFED. The idea was that we had a direct line to ministers. And it was William Waldegrave, actually, who was the minister at the time, who gave Secretary of State at the time, he gave us, he gave us 5,000 quid and said, go away and set up an organisation so I can speak to all the chairmen. And that's how, that's how we started it. And we paid the money back. And... Um, so that's how it started. So it, it was it was a, a period of optimis optimism. It was operational freedom. We were pleased to just kind of get on, roll up our sleeves and get stuff done. Over time, I mean, clearly that has eroded. Uh, and there's been a gradual clawing back, I think, of that operational freedom. Now, I think, to be honest, trust boards a little more than the delivery arm of, of the Department of Health. NHS England, of course, find itself in a difficult position because we, if we take go forward in time from the Thatcher reforms to the Lansley reforms, Andrew Lansley wanted to divorce uh, the politics from, from the operation of the NHS. So he set up what was supposed to be an arm's length body called the uh, NHS England, and the the plan was that the Department of Health, the Secretary of State for Health, would give the trusts uh, an annual mandate, as it was called, which was fundamentally a shopping list of stuff that they wanted done during the year, and they would uh, get on and do it. Because over time, all of that freedom has been clawed back. Um, and the, the, the problem now is the Langley reforms have been largely dumped. We have a new configuration now, which is involving integrated care boards, uh, which uh, allow local authorities and the voluntary sector and others to sit around the table and try and, and operate more in a collegiate way, which is very similar to district health authorities, if people are old enough to remember that. But what it's done is it's left NHS England between a rock and a hard place. It's got the Department of Health that's breathing down its neck. It's got the the trusts on the other side who are saying, you know, what, well, what is it you want us to do? And in NHS England really have very little authority anymore. They're now just really a, a delivery arm of the Department of Health. And I'm sorry to give you such a long answer, but it's, it is it is something that's eroded over time. So the short answer against that background of what I've just tried to explain is um, have trusts failed? No, I don't think they have. Uh, I think they've actually delivered quite well, uh, given the other impact, of course, of austerity after the world banking crisis, uh, we had nearly 10 years of flatline funding where we didn't hire enough people, buy enough kit, buy enough beds, repair enough hospitals. And that's why we're in the mess we're in now. And so I think really they've been, I suppose, what the word I'm looking for is they've been emasculated by time and the constant uh, uh, gravitational pull that there is back to the centre where the Department of Health, I mean, particularly now under Steve Barclay, who is a, an absolute minute man manager, I think we've seen 
all of those freedoms and all of that op- optimism has largely gone. So I think they, I mean, I think they're doing a good operational job given the problems that they've got. But certainly, I don't think they've lived up to the expectations when they were first um, initiated. Uh, and I think, you know, I've tried to explain the reasons for that. Sorry, that's, a, that's the longest answer I'm going to give today, but that's the answer. <laughs> No, no, no. That's really that's really helpful, and and I'm going to actually throw it to, to Duncan because I think Duncan, what I'm seeing for sure is a huge, huge system. And my question, I think, to you is, knowing what we know and knowing what you see with regards to what's happening around us, do we continue to throw money at a system that is clearly failing and continuing to fail, or? Is there another suggestion? Is there another way? Do we rebuild it from scratch? Um, Duncan, what are your thoughts, especially to what Roy's just said? Yeah, a a fascinating uh, insight from Roy there, and a a condensed history and uh, outlining the trajectory of how uh, the initial fervour around trusts and the development of foundation trusts came into being and how that has gradually been eroded. And I think, you know, sort of picking up on those points, um, my, my, my view is yet to be uh, uh, unshaken in, in that the more we over-regulate, the more we over-politicise, the more we uh, allow interference in the functionality of the hospital system in any in any guise whatever guise it comes in is just doomed to failure now clearly nhs trusts can't fail they have to function they have to perform they have to deliver and what we're seeing is an erosion of that capacity to deliver so i think when you take several steps back and look at the overall systematicity of the NHS um, and the Department of Health, you see this huge collision between the the, the technocratic and the politicised agenda bumping into the clinical reality of delivering decent patient care. And I think to say that that trusts are failing is uh, factually probably quite correct in as far as we have monstrosities of waiting lists um, and, and log jam systems, ambulances queuing outside A&E. But if you step back from that sort of operational front line and look at the overall system, I think we have landed up with creating so much technocratic interference with the NHS that it is, dare one say, grinding to a standstill. If you look at how uh, organisations like the CQC, NHS England, MRHA, all function and collude together to crowd out the entrepreneurial spirit that was the the the, the lodestar, the, the the real sort of objective, the real political objective behind setting up trusts and certainly foundation trusts. That has gradually been eroded, um, but it's been replaced, and it's the replacement that is the problem. It's the replacement with the technocratic and the politicised. Now, I don't know whether that answers your question in full, um, but I look at it and, and I come from perhaps a different perspective, having been able over the years to compare it to uh, other uh, international health systems that I've worked in overseas. And the idea that the NHS is the jewel in the crown, as you said, uh, that 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 rumour, that that uh, reputation disappears very quickly once you get overseas. And it certainly is not seen as being the optimal way of delivering healthcare. No other country mirrors it, no other country copies it. And I think that, that therein lies the lesson. So I think to answer your question, your latter question quite directly, is it time to rethink, redesign, reconfigure? Yes, it certainly is. My real hesitation is that we have lived through so many reorganizations that we have become fatigued. We have reorganization fatigue within the NHS and its other organizations that support it, social care, local authorities. But nevertheless, I think in terms of sustainability and justifiability over the next certainly 20, 30 years, we cannot go on like this. 
It is impossible to go on like this. We have to fundamentally rethink the mechanisms and the structures of the NHS. And I really hesitate to put forward the proposal that we need to reorganise yet again. But I cannot get away from the fact that we need to redefine, repurpose and create an entirely different disposition for our health delivery uh, and care systems. And, and we, we can talk through at length about the Burtzorg approach, um, pr how primary care functions, um, and, and sort of whether we vertically integrate or horizontally integrate hospital and care systems, and, and the, the uh, care boards, the, the integrated care boards that, that Roy mentioned. Um, and if you look at the Scottish experience of the care boards, it has become virtually a Ponzi scheme. They've spent millions upon millions in committees and meetings, uh, uh, and yet has still to deliver much at all. So I think there is a real danger that we could replicate those errors of judgment um, without actually getting to a point where we have a fully functional NHS, a fully functional hospital system, and GPs that are content and happy to work within a system that gives them professional satisfaction and provides for patient care. Okay, I've ranted on a bit now. so. Um, no, um, can I just before I bring Roy back in, because I can see Roy's making notes and I'm going to give you the opportunity in two seconds, Roy. Um, you mentioned the Burtzhog. Could you just explain very quickly? I know that that's hospital at home and I know it's modelled from another country. Could you just very quickly explain what that is? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it was invented in, in Holland. I say invented loosely. Um, and, and the word Burtzog in, in Dutch means Burt is um, local, um, in some cases district, but very much local, and Zorg is care. And the implication in that combined title is that it is, is locally focused, intensive care. And it's as simple as that, really. So what you have originally, the original Dutch concept was that you would have um, a budgeted nurse enterprise that would be self-governing, self-directing, um, and would uh, create interventions at the very much the local dump, uh, neighborhood level um, and provide care support as a diversionary scheme to stop people going into hospital, to prevent people going into hospital and to, to provide for them when they come out of hospital. Prevention is the real critical issue here. Stopping admissions. And uh, uh, one report I read, albeit I have to say a couple of years ago, they were uh, diverting 40, over 40% 40 of hospital admissions. And that is a lesson that we need to learn in the United Kingdom because the, the divorced situation we have between statutory health care and social services directed social care, home care, is fraught. And if you could bring those two together in a harmonious, synchronised, integrated way, then you would effectively create Burtzog. The problem that we are going to run into within the United Kingdom is the Burtzog system as it has started to manifest over the last uh, five, six years, whatever it is, is effectively reinventing the primary care trust. And that is not what it is intended to be. It is intended to be a nurse-driven nurse diagnosis, nurse care programs, rehabilitation and habilitation. And I think we, we could miss this trick. So the Burtzog system has proved to be phenomenally successful in Holland. It's been exported to Denmark, Sweden, Germany, Brazil, Taiwan, um, and, and a couple of other countries. And I think that is where a significant portion of patient care should be, re should be directed to, uh, rather than relying on the bricks and mortar model and the social services driven social care model that uh, we've come to love and hate. Thank you, Duncan. There's a lot there to unpack. Roy, over to you. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, just quickly on Burtzog, I agree. I, I think I uh, I interviewed Joster Block, um, who is the guy that uh, mm. runs it. Um, <laughs> I think I was the first person to get him here and uh, and interview him. And uh, I've been a big fan of Burtzog. I've been over there. I've seen it. Um, and I think I'm right in saying, Duncan, that we had a go at doing it here. King's Community Services, I think. Mm, um, yeah, had a, yeah, had a go at doing it, 
and I, I must say to my everlasting shame, I've lost track of whatever happened. I think it fizzled out. Um, or yeah. certainly it's not yeah. made some huge, great impression. It was quite interesting because King's Hospital, King's College Hospital I'm talking about, was vertically integrated in as much as they had secondary care and they were doing community care. If it was going to work mm. anywhere, it was going to work at King's. And I think they had some heroic attempts to make it work. But I'm not sure uh, whether it fizzled out because it fizzled out or I think it got buried in COVID. So it's probably not very fair to, to, to judge its success here. But I, I do agree that the, the, it's a very attractive model. And it's a particularly attractive model, I think, for community nurses to work in. Uh, where there's a huge amount of autonomy. It does require a higher level of um, investment in IT than we've got because everybody's using different IT systems to access notes and what have you here. But uh, certainly I, I agree with that. So, uh, okay, well, we agree with that. What, if we go back at the other uh, the other aspect of what we're discussing, I, I mean, I mean, God knows, I, I've seen, I can't imagine how many uh, changes in 50 years of being an NHS watcher. I, I, th- I think I've seen 12 major upheavals and, and God knows how many fiddling about fine tuning and all the rest of it. None of it's really made any difference. At the end, you know, I mean, managers have to re- reapply for their jobs, but nurses are still looking after patients. So none of it's really made a lot of difference. Uh, it is interesting that, of course, that Landley's reforms, the ones that everybody traduces because they were cockeyed and ham-fisted, um, what he actually tried to do was to divorce uh, politicians from the day-to-day running of the NHS and let the NHS get on with it with his arms and legs body called NHS England because it never happened uh, because it's public money. The Secretary of State will always have to stand up in Parliament on Wednesday afternoon at Health Questions and explain to the Honourable Member for up, up at Chumlington why Mrs Ethel Smith has been waiting three years for a hip operation. I mean, it, it's going to have to be micromanaged however you do it. I can't see us ever uh, decoupling that. So I think the, you know, that's, I don't know, I know Lansley had the best opportunity to do it and it's not worked. If we're talking about failure, I think it's very important to do what good managers do, and that's to examine the root cause of failure. And the root cause of failure, I mean, I don't know whether Duncan would agree with this, but the, the root cause of failure that we're, that we're all stressing about at the moment, of course, is workforce. And the difficulty with workforce is this is not just a homegrown problem. There's a global problem with workforce, and everybody's trying to recruit everybody else's nurses. I mean, Australia are trying to nick our nurses to go and work in the sunshine. We're trying to pinch nurses from Nepal, if you can imagine it, which is an appalling thing, uh, and bring them here uh, when they've got almost no primary care of their own back home. I mean, it's it's it's, a, it's breaking the World Health Organization's rule, Red Book rules doing it. Um, and... So, so at the moment, I mean, we've got this this horrendous workforce problem. Now, we're recording this. I don't know whether I'm giving away a secret here or whether we're supposed not to know when this is recorded, but I can tell you we're recording this on Thursday, the 29th of June. Uh, you can edit that out if you like. But uh, we were told this week by Friday, uh, the 30th of June, we would have a workforce plan. Uh, published. Uh, I don't think it's going to come tomorrow. I may be wrong, but I think it's probably going to come closer to the NHS's birthday. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter what is in this plan. It doesn't matter how good it is. It doesn't matter if it's funded up to the last farthing. It will do nothing to solve the problems that we've got at the moment uh, because it takes so long to train a nurse and so long to train a doctor and so long to train an allied health professional. We've got a critical workforce problem, too many patients, and somehow or other we're going to have to find a way of muddling through. I don't know whether, Duncan, you agree with any of that. Yes, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And I I think there are some very fundamental problems around that. And I think from a very, very simplistic point of view, um, there was an, an argument that, was made several years ago to uh, the then Secretary of Health, who was asked in a, in, in a, a public discussion um, at the Royal College of Physicians that if, if nurse recruitment and indeed medical recruitment is so problematic, how long do you think that problem would last if you were to offer 50,000 quid a year to the, for a starter nurse? You'd have them queuing up down the road, round the corner and back again. So I think, you know, we, that's a very simplistic take on it. But it nevertheless, 
underlines the economic and the financial impact of the health service in terms of recruitment, uh, retention, and, you know, vast numbers of people, vast numbers of trainees leave, they depart before the end of the course, or they don't stay and work in the NHS after they've qualified. So there's a double barrel problem there. I think in terms of recruiting overseas, it's a, it's a hiding to nothing, and I, I have personal hands-on experience of that. Um, but I think in, in, in terms of the, the longitudinal problem, we, we have to go back to how we educate our healthcare professionals and how we uh, induce them into the care system. And there is quite a lot of doubt that Project 2000, for example, worked properly. The reduction in experience hours for medical practitioners is, is causing problems. Uh, and I think in, in, in terms of a workforce strategy that's coming out uh, scheduled for tomorrow, as you said, um, it, it's not likely to hit the target. It's not likely to address the underlying problems. And it comes back to chucking more of the same at that and expecting something different to happen, which I think can is I, a real can I just, can I fundamental just say problem of the NHS. Yeah. Yeah. Can I say, Doc, if I, if I'm, is it okay for me to jump in here? Yeah, um, of course. Um, Feel free. I mean, if, if the, uh, the work, I mean, if the workforce plan is a proper workforce plan, it will have to, it will first have to define work. Uh, and work could be very different in the future. The type of work that, that staff do, the impact of technology. I mean, we've all seen how artificial intelligence is really machine learning at the moment, but how that's all impacted on a, the education system, for example. I mean, at the moment, nobody knows how they're going to mark uh, degree theses that have all been written by artificial intelligence. So, you know, I mean, it, it, the, there are there are huge Technique, technological impacts. Now, if I said to you, Duncan, that it's it's very likely to be the case that the workforce plan will say the workforce at the future, the future, instead of being professional and skilled, will be trained, task and finish, i.e., breaking some of the work down into components and just training people to do little bits of that component because it's easier to recruit in a de-skilled workforce, what do you think would be the likely upshot of all that? I think it would be a, a, a desperate miscalculation. Um, and, and it comes back to the fundamental problem of the NHS, that everybody looks at it as being a, a, a financial and economic problem rather than uh, a human and skills-based problem. And I think if you were to take... Uh, that that model that you you've presented there, I think you would be reducing the uh, the capacity of the healthcare system in its broadest sense to provide personalised care in a way that addresses a multitude of issues. If you take, for example, the average patient in the average hospital, they are elderly. They are, there are multiple morbidity, uh, multiple diagnoses, multi-pathologies. And I think if you have a, a, an iPad-based checklist, you are going to miss the fundamental sort of issues around how each of those different diagnostic issues inter, interrelate, bump into each other, exacerbate each other. And I have a real trepidation about having, um, I suppose, a, a knowledgeable but not not a technically knowledgeable, but not a practice-based uh, person who can, like like a medical practitioner or a nurse practitioner, who can understand and interpret those multi-pathologies and and disaggregate them and work out a plan of long-term care, rehabilitation, habilitation, whatever. And I think you know we we have the problem at the moment where you go to a GP and you're only allowed to discuss one issue. If you have multi-pathologies and you need to discuss four or five things that are all interrelated, like you've got fibromyalgia, diabetes, you're overweight, you've got a, 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 an overgrown uh, you know, a bladder problems uh, and things like that, you, you, you run into this, this problem of lack of being able to see the, the whole holistic picture of patient care. And I think the model that, that 
is almost certainly going to emerge in some form or other of an automated system will denude that professionalism from healthcare. And I think well, there's a very good if, if I may just jump in, there's an extremely good example of that today. The announcement from NHS England that it's going to send through the post the 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 44 to 74 year old health check which uh mm. i mean we've been able to have the health check of, of that of that group that cohort of patients have been able to have a health check before covid uh like that and it's very good mm. and normally you would have gone to the gp practice to have that where you would have sat down, probably not a GP, but probably a, a nurse, a practice nurse, and you would have gone through the checklist and she would have done the bloods and the blood pressure. She would have had a chat with you and she would have seen, you know, how you sit down, how mobile you are, how you responded to questions, all of that. Now, of course, because of improvements in, in, uh, in blood spot analysis, they're going to send you uh, a thing through the post. You're going to do the thing online and send the samples back, and it's all being going to be done by, I don't know, somebody in a factory in Milton Keynes. So we've, so we've lost that interaction in the name of progress. And I just thought I'd just drop that in because it is so, top, so uh, topical, Duncan, that, that you mention it today. Yeah, Gentlemen, and I think that I, there is no objection. Can I just objection. jump in very quickly just to refer well, it's back your to pro- Project It's 2000. your programme. <laughs> <laughs> it's your program. You're entitled no, to. I just, I'm just going to stand up a little bit for nurses here because I recently spoke to a, a nurse, Jenna Platt, um, who trains in the 90s. And her observation was that nursing today, um, post Project 2000, um, was that nurses are operating on exactly what you've just been talking about, tick lists. That wasn't what was happening in my day. And I'm looking at how we're training nurses and the nurses of today are telling me that they wish they trained when I trained. They wish they'd had nurses' homes, accommodation, transport. They wish that even though we had a pittance of a wage and, you know, Roy and Duncan, we're both of a similar generation. And I I know, Roy, that you used to walk in the back door of a hospital to talk to a porter or to talk to maybe a canteen assistant or a student nurse on your way to your office. This is all gone. We seem to have lost our way in the hospitals. We had almost a friendly competition, a, a banter, if you like, a rivalry, different uniforms, and we've lost all of that. And now I see health fused together with security. You know, the UK HSA are spooks. Do we need NHS England? Do we need the CQC? Has this grown too big to manage? Um, I don't know which one of you wants to come back on that first. I'll throw well, it yeah. open. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I, before I come immediately to that, I'd like to just rewind to, to Roy's thing. I don't think there's any objection to um, use of technology. Uh, in healthcare, I mean, it's a great boon, but I think you you have to retain the humanity and the human touch within healthcare, particularly in things like childcare, child health, mental health, where the 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 the, the dominant component of the care is is the nurse patient interface, the doctor patient interface, and I think if you reduce it to a systematic tick list automated ipad based system you lose that that care that caring that that remedial context of, of the nurse patient doctor patient relationship and indeed physios and ot's of course i mean stepping up to the to the to the discussion around whether the nhs uh, do we need nhs england do we need the cqc i mean you're going to get me on a soapbox with this deb you know, because my my sort of my, my soapbox, you know, is that the the CQC particularly is an absolute abhorrent waste of time, money, and effort. NHS England, to reflect what Roy was saying a few minutes ago, was set up by the Lansley reforms to to place that intermediate step between ministerial responsibility and operational accountability. And you know, the last thing we need within the health sector is 
ever encroaching more technocracy, more technocrats, more bureaucratic layers. And I think that the reason for that failing is because the distance between the patient and the operational front line and the managerial, strategic, financial, economic, fiscal decisions is so extended and so great that it's become disconnected. There is that enormous disconnect. And if you talk to nurses, OTs, physios on the front line, social care people out in the field, and you say, well, what, what impact is NHS England? They just look at you as if you're talking Martian. Um, it is totally devoid. If you talk to practitioners at all levels, GPs, nurses, about the CQC, and the universal response is just a raised eyebrow. And you just think, you know, what on earth are we doing? Chucking 500 million a year or more at something like the CQC. And I think I'd like to quote Roy here because he has said on innumerable occasions, if the CQC turn up and there's not a problem, you're too late and you're wasting money. If you turn up and there is a problem, you're too late and you're wasting money. You're wasting money. And I just think it's the last thing we need is, is a CQC type of system. There are far better I, ways I, of, of doing this, such as uh, contract compliance, uh, as the best example. Yes, Roy, you were going to say. No, no, I, 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 well, thank you for quoting me. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I just wonder, really, <laughs> I, I, I mean, to come back to Deb's point, uh, I, and I mean, it, you know, she's, she's rightly trying to focus us, I think, on uh, the, the care uh, aspect of, of where we are with, with a, with a, an increasingly bureaucratized system it's 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 care versus completion of care isn't it care is a sort of continuum where you have the same relationship with the gp i mean you, you know my mum uh when she was alive bless her she had a wonderful relationship with a a, a female GP who actually I didn't think was very good, to be honest, but my mum was devoted to her and she wouldn't see anybody else in the practice. And they used to have a chat and, uh, and, and I think, you know, there, there was this sort of therapeutic uh, benefit of sitting having a chat that, that benefited. I mean, that was care for me, I, I, uh, for her, for me, I don't want that. I, I want to be able to get on you know my mobile phone, uh, have some kind of a, a conversation with, somebody on the other end and and get my care completed as fast as i can so we've got we've got that kind of tension that's emerged uh, emerging in in the system and of course the worry is that given uh, the impossible numbers because you know we we, we the, uh, the uh the population of the country is going up the, the the increased numbers in the elderly and the demand for care and the difficulty that there is in recruiting uh, not just here, but worldwide, is, okay, what do we do sensibly to address Deb's fundamental question is how do we cope with all that, but at the same time still put the care, and dare I, dare I add another word, Debs, um, uh, care and common sense back into healthcare. And, and, and that's, you know, the fundamental of, of it for me. And, it's, and, and that's, that's really a big conversation. Common sense, Roy. This is a very good point because what I'm seeing is a complete lack of common sense, where common sense appears to go out of the window. And today, um, actually, the Wellcome Trust have been, um, and there's plenty to say about the Wellcome Trust, but we won't on, on this occasion. But the Wellcome Trust have released a report to say that the sickness level in the NHS for 2022 was 5.6%, which equated to 74,500 staff being off sick. And we've got 100,000 vacancies. Um, I'm going to ask, why are all of our staff sick? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna say the co I'm gonna call call it COVID, right? Because we have to address it. What effect has the COVID pandemic had on the NHS? Why are we seeing now many more people sick? Why are we seeing such a high rise in our nurses and doctors going off sick? And why, when we've got seven million on the waiting list? Are we testing healthy people through smartphone apps? You know, if why would we be testing healthy people when we can't currently cope with those that are sick and that are on the waiting list? Why are the British Heart Foundation telling us that 
there are 500 excess deaths from cardiac disease every single week. What has happened in the last two years? What's changed? Roy, do you want to come in on that first? Yes, I, I read the report this morning, actually. and I, I think it's the Nuffield Trust that, uh, that published it just to, to, Sorry, to save you my getting correction. Yeah. It's, it, to save you getting thousands of emails from people when we broadcast this, <laughs> best get that right. Um, I, I, and I read it this morning. Actually, the, the report is is it, it's not the headlines, right? F- first of all, um, they they compare. It's very if, if you look at the the information on um, the uh, the NHS data site, the NHS digital. Um, the, uh, the the sickness levels of around five point something or other uh, are pretty consistent um, and have been uh, apart from the disruption that there's been with COVID. What what this uh, report has done is gone back to 2019 and said more people are sick now than they were in 2019. So I'm not I'm not really sure where we're. we're really comparing apples with apples there. I think there's a bit of an apples and orange thing. It's not apples and light bulbs, but it's apples and oranges, I think. Um, and if you look at the number of people, the, the biggest reason for people being off sick is mental health and stress. But it's it's been like it's been that way since they started collecting the data. And there are a hundred thousand more over that uh, over that 2019 to today period. Um, and the reason for it, um, and in case any of the, the viewers want to look this up, it's on the Nuffield Hospital uh, Nuffield Trust website. It's worth looking in Figure One on page one in in the report. They track uh, um, sickness w- with uh, COVID, and the recent big spike is Omicron. It absolutely leaps off the page. And of course, Omicron uh, was has been the variant of COVID where we have done the least to protect ourselves. Where the 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 philosophy has been, well, you know, we'll get some kind of herd immunity out this. Um, and if you look at the at the report, it also shows us the other big group to have been hit by Omicron are teachers. Their, their graph has gone up like a ski lift. It absolutely. Uh, it mirrors. So what it, what we're saying is Omicron came along. We didn't do much to protect ourselves because we've been vaccinated, but it's still given us, given us periods of sickness, but not mortality. And people who are in sharp end facing jobs have suffered from it the most. That is not to say, of course, that there is the impact of long COVID, which uh, um, I've I've actually become the uh, sufferer of long COVID because it's affected my eyesight and I'm now much more dependent on glasses than I ever was. So uh, it, it, it's not as clear a picture as the headlines would give us uh, when we look at the Nuffield report. But there's no question about it. The sickness levels um, are higher than they used to be and the sickness levels in the NHS have always been higher than the national population. The, uh, I mean, we've gone five, nine percent, something like that, and the population it's much lower. And interestingly enough, amongst the self-employed, it's much lower still. So it seems to me that if you're self-employed and you've got to put bread and jam on the table for your kids, you'll go to work when you're half dead. But if you've got a job where you can go off sick and still get paid, then probably it's a bit different. But and of course, the other factor is that um, if you read the report, uh, managers have had less time off sick than front-end staff. The reason for that is, of course, managers are not front-end. And the other thing is, if you are front-end and you have got uh, uh, symptoms and you have got a rotten cold or the flu or whatever, we do not want you to come to work because you're going to spread it amongst vulnerable people. So the report is actually a mixed picture. Roy, can I I throw... (coughs) Before I bring you in, Duncan, can I just throw another Mm. option out to you? Because... I've been getting a lot of emails from nurses and I've been speaking to somebody recently who's a steward, who was a steward of the Royal College of Nurses. And there are many nurses who appear to have been taken very ill after they've had or been asked to take the COVID vaccination. Now, the MHRA published on their website 
that there were, at the last count, uh, they, they haven't published for a few months. But when they stopped publishing at Christmas, there were over 500,000 serious adverse reactions, and there were also over 2,000 deaths. Now, nobody appears to be looking at this. And whilst I accept it completely what you're saying, it is one of the elephants in the room in that we are, and I'm not an anti-vax, I've had flu jabs for years in, in days gone by. However, what we're seeing is a high rise in what would appear to be serious adverse reactions. And until we have an investigation and we have an open and honest conversation about it, we're never going to know for sure. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, maybe I'll just go back to well, Roy very quickly before I throw yeah, that open very, to Duncan. Very, very, quickly, I'll, I'll, very quickly, I'll give way to Duncan, of course. Um, uh, firstly, uh, on the uh, adverse e events, they're collected by, by what's called the yellow flag system. So if you have had a jab and then something you're not well afterwards and you talk to it, your doctor about it, they will report it. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are related. Um, uh, but of course, as you say, we need more research to find out. The two two thousand um, unexpected deaths. Uh, I mean, any death is a tragedy for the family involved, and we do need to look into it. But I think it's probably true to say, not that I'm trying to promote some equivalence argument here, because equivalence arguments never really work. But I think it is fair to say that uh, the the uh, the jabs, the vaccinations, have saved a huge amount of lives and. You know, as someone who's in my mid-70s, I've been very grateful to have all the jabs. I think the answer to the question is we don't know enough and we won't know enough, I think, until, you know, a lot of very complicated researchers unpicked at all this. I mean, we will know uh, because all the health research agencies will want to know and the pharmaceutical companies will want to know. But, uh, but I, think it, it's, I think we can draw imputations from this but I don't think we can draw conclusions, and I and I think the jury's out. Duncan. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the issues around sickness and absence within the health sector uh, is a long-standing problem and has been a, a significant issue in terms of uh, resource planning and resource management. Um, I mean, when you're working in a, a high uh, labour-intensive environment and you're exposed to all manner of disease and, and infection and, and whatever, you know, unhealthy people in hospital, the incidence of uh, sickness and absence really is impacted quite significantly. You know, working in close proximity with, with that in that environment is going to lead to sickness and absence. And certainly um, public sector People who are, uh, you know, public-facing are involved with the public, uh, have disproportionately high volumes of sickness and absence. Police force at one point, where I was working at one at one time, were reporting eighteen percent sickness. You know, an extraordinary amount. You know, ne nearly a fifth of your workforce is out. Um, but then again, <clears throat> if you look at the caring professions, the stress within the caring professions is, is quite disproportionate, quite enormous. And stress has always been an underlying factor in, uh, in people taking time out. And, and as, uh, as an ex-NHS manager, I spent a significant amount of time uh, with <laughs> discussing with people their sickness and absence records. And we set up counselling sessions, uh, remedial counselling sessions, so that people could discuss and uh, ventilate their, their sort of real problems. And uh, invariably, there were the stress levels, not enough staff, insufficient time to do the job properly, and so on and so forth. So unless as a system, as a healthcare system, you're going to address that and recognise that as a significant factor, you're going to have to go on underwriting sickness and absence levels of that ilk. Coming to your latter point about uh, injurious effects of uh, the vaccinations for uh, COVID, coronavirus, there is very strong emerging evidence that the damaging effect of those uh, uh, vaccines has been disproportionate. The excess death rate over levels of expectation in most jurisdictions 
uh, it is very disproportionate. Um, and you know, countries like New Zealand, Australia, UK um, are reporting significant excess deaths. Sweden, surprise, surprise, is not. And there has to be some form of or some correlation between that. And I think that it's, it would be unfortunate to dismiss the impact, the deleterious impact of those vaccinations in a way that diminishes what is plainly hurting a lot of people. A lot of families are suffering the effects of lost, lost fathers, partners, whatever. And long COVID is certainly a very real issue. And I don't think you have to do much research or read very far to learn that there is a significant body of evidence starting to emerge quite clearly demonstrating that those vaccines were not the miracle cure that were promised. Very definitely not the miracle cure. Well, we know for uh, sure that, uh, and that, yeah, I mean, we, we know for sure that um, it doesn't stop transmission um, and it doesn't stop infection. So, um, there are many stories about the vaccines that we could talk about, Roy. And but I, I would direct you to the, the fact that the Pfizer have released um, their primary papers, and these are being analysed. And all of the reports can be found on the Daily Clout. Um, but I do think that it's the elephant in the room, and I'm really glad that we are having this discussion and that we're able to talk about it because. No one else seems to want to talk about it, Roy. But I am hearing from no, many I, people I, listen, within the health. Yeah, Carry on. No, I, absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, I defer to Duncan as a clinician. I'm not, uh, and 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 I really don't know. But I think the it's worth just pointing out that, that if you look at the proportion of the population that have received a vaccination, um, even a tiny percent. Uh, where it's done harm or gone wrong or you know something's not right with it, even a tiny percent. It's a tiny percent of a big number is a big number, and and that's probably what we're dealing with. So, I guess we'll have to see. Do you think though um, it would be worthy of a, a discussion with because we are trying to have uh, an open and honest discussion with the MHRA. We're having, we're trying to have open and honest discussions with the governments, with politicians, but nobody really seems to want to talk about it, and that's concerning because, for me, and and this is, I know I'm keeping an eye on the clock because I know that you're, you're both very, very busy gentlemen, and we could go on talking for for hours <laughs> about what's wrong with the NHS. But Duncan, you've got some, you've got some ideas of how to put this right, haven't you? And it's called the Chambers model. And Roy, have a listen to what Duncan says about his Chambers model and see what you think to this. Yes, go okay. on, um, Yes, okay. I mean, it, it, it's come from working in several countries where I have noted, you know, and worked with different health schemes, different health uh, approaches where people uh, and, and, and politicians and uh, clinicians, managers have come up with different ideas of how to uh, manage the, the, the healthcare system. And one of the things that, that strikes me across the board is that if you create a better approach to primary care where you have um, an integrated system of care rather than the GP uh, sort of running a, a corner shop, dare I say, sort of approach to it, where you have a far greater uh, spectrum of services on tap so that you have a GP working um, uh, as, a, as a clinician, uh, a senior clinician integrated into the, uh, the broader healthcare system where you have a, a vertically integrated system. They are part of um, a clinical team with a speciality, but you staff that chambers model with a resident pharmacist, a resident uh, relate counsellor, a resident financial advisor. And, and the, reason I, uh, the reason I say this is because when we looked at GP practices and GP workloads, 40 to 60% of their workload was in 
issues that could be easily dealt with by someone else, typically a practice nurse, um, a, a pharmacist with prescribing rights. Um, and there was also a very large component of people who are in relationship breakdown, who are in financial difficulties or combinations of all the above. So the proposal, when I worked with um, a community uh, pharmacist who was working uh, with the Department of Health some years ago, was that we came up with the, the, the chambers model. And you have a barrister or a solicitor who works in a chambers, and that's openly accepted, that's understood as being how they work. If we replicated that approach um, in a way that created a hub and spoke, a health centre, not the sort of health centre that you have now, but a centre for health care that looked after emotional, mental, uh, as well as physical illnesses, a vast amount of the workload that GPs are confronted with could be downloaded, backloaded onto other professions quite easily, seamlessly. That would then free up general practitioners to become part of a bigger health picture, bigger medical paradigm, where they are part and parcel of uh, the hospital system, for want of a better word. So if you have a GP who has a particular special interest and expertise in, let's say, gastrointestinal disorders, then people would go to see that doctor if they have a GI problem. Uh, someone else is, is keen on uh, ear, nose and throat and, and so on. And you would self-refer to those GPs. You wouldn't be booked into a specific GP where you go to for anything and everything. So you'd go to a specific GP for a specific problem. Those GPs would then be part and parcel of the clinical team, say an ENT team or a gastrointestinal team, whatever, and, and would form part of the continuity of care across that spectrum. vast majority of the workload could be devolved down to pharmacists with prescribing rights, as I say, practice nurses with prescribing rights, uh, and other counsellors that would be available. And we found uh, when we researched this that 40 to 60% of the workload that GPs are uh, routinely confronted with could be offloaded onto other professionals seamlessly. And I think if you added to that social care and uh, a, a community health watch, we have neighbourhood watch for, for petty crime, breaking and entering and all that sort of thing, keeping crime levels low. If you had a health watch, neighbourhood health watch, you could have somebody paid locally a bursary of, say, 500 quid a month, whatever, who would get to know the local health problems in a given quarter, a few streets, a block or two, and would get to know the, the single parents, single mums who are struggling, the elderly who are struggling, the substance abuse people who are struggling, and would keep their finger on the, their, their thumb on the pulse of those sort of situations and could alert and activate the, the uh, Chambers model care system uh, in a way that just doesn't happen at the moment. I think we could, we could create a system that has such a high impact in terms of diversionary care, getting people away from the bricks and mortar hospital model and into a more appropriate care profile. We could really start to make inroads into waiting lists, A&E queues, nursing home problems, um, and, and people just not getting into the healthcare system for whatever reason, be that linguistic, ethnic, uh, poverty, homelessness, whatever. Uh, and I think it's a system that is, uh, the healthcare system as we currently run it, is just crying out for a, a mould-breaking approach to these problems. Here endeth the 75th rant of the day. <laughs> so we changed the NHS into the LHS, the local health service, yeah. Duncan. Roy, yeah. please, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there's a lot to be said for shifting the fulcrum point of care. Um, it seems to me that there, uh, and Duncan's right, I mean, there's a gap between a GP, GP unplugged, let's put it like that, without all the paraphernalia around them, a GP unplugged, I know, working in a supermarket or a shop or a community centre, they, they're prescribing this, they can do a huge amount. The other end, you've got the hospital yeah. where you've got all the palaver and you've got the gap in the middle, the bit in the middle, which is a kind of no man's land where hospitals sort of want to send stuff back to GPs. GPs need to send stuff to hospital. 
and and it's it's a kind of awkward no man's land that suits no one. Now this is very similar, of course, to the Darcy Centre solution yeah. that Gordon Brown uh, came up with in two thousand and oh, what, what am I? It's sixteen. Now let me think. Two thousand and nine was it? That. Something like that. Yeah, um, before like that. that. Yeah. yeah. And of course, the the Darcy centres, uh, just for you know, a historical reference, were first mooted by uh, Lord Darcy, as he now is, who is a very advanced and clever clinician, who was brought into government to try and sort out just this type of problem. It's a polyclinic model, really, which, uh, I mean, it's in Australia, Denmark, France, Germany, Sweden, uh, and my also, dare I say, Russia, um, where they, they use this polyclinic model. Um, the reason the Darcy centres failed was that Gordon Brown thought it was such a good idea that he required every primary care trust, who were the sort of operational, overarching operational people of the day, they all had to have one, which, of course, you know that if you tell GPs they've got to do something, then you're likely to end up with a riot on your hands. <laughs> and that was really Forget it. what happened. <laughs> yeah, they, that's yeah. right. And a lot of, lot of the docs said, I'm not going to go and work in it. Uh, you know, I've got, I'm, I'm running my own business here, my own mum and papa shop here. I'm doing very nicely. Thanks very much. Why should I up sticks and go there? So it, it was extremely badly implemented by the policymakers. But there's no doubt about it. And Duncan is right, is that there is a gap between what hospitals need to do and what um, GPs end up doing, the bit in the middle isn't properly resourced. And I think that sort of polyclinic model, uh, carefully introduced in areas where it would benefit. I mean, you don't need a polyclinic model probably in leafy Surrey where everybody's, you know, fit and healthy. But polyclinic models where I'm speaking to you from, the, from uh, East London, a polyclinic model here I would imagine it would be hugely well received with you know all the mums yeah. and the elderly and all the all those sort of grey area ancillary issues that can be dealt with by a, a multifaceted or multi a multi team I suppose a multi team approach. The I mean it does require quite a bit of retraining. I mean most pharmacists are not really trained to diagnose. Um, nurses, um, they're, they're called non-medical prescribers, which I'm a big fan of. You know, we have 300,000 nurses working in the NHS, and I think only 11,000 of them are medical, non-medical prescribers. So, I mean, we need to shift all that around so that we could move that work. But uh, I, yeah, I, I agree. I'm a, I would be a big fan of trying to reintroduce uh, polyclinics. I think one of the oh, problems with the Darcy really clinic. I think I'm really old-fashioned, gentlemen, because you know I want to go, I want to go back towards full of flowers with open windows, and <laughs> and I don't want all of these big brutalist buildings where you can't open the windows, and these hospitals that are in disrepair are are are, are just petri dishes. And at the moment, what I'm seeing in the NHS that trained, that gave me one, I, th I think one of the finest trainings in the world and has delivered all five of my children. I'm seeing surveillance. I'm seeing a security system. I'm seeing a conditional national health service that isn't accessible to a lot of people. And many people feel that they're trapped, trapped within a system. I mean, Duncan has already said it, you know, the NHS is so great that it's never, ever been modelled anywhere else in the world. Nobody's copied us. Perhaps that's for a reason, because there doesn't seem to be a mechanism to opt out of the NHS. And, I mean, there's just so much more to discuss, and, and I hope that you'll both agree to join me again, because I think it's really important that we have these honest discussions and maybe touch on subjects that we might not always agree on, but that we're, we, we're up front because the debates need to be had and we see things from different angles. And if we all see, if we all talk about it, then at least we're coming from the same direction. And I certainly do like the idea of going back to a local health service with cottage hospitals and local people because local knowledge is great. The one thing that I wouldn't want to see is big pharma and globalists infiltrating with their money. But Look, gentlemen, I, I really am keeping my eyes on the clock and I know that you're both, you've both got um, other appointments. 
So can I start off by A, thanking you so much for both agreeing to do this, but I would, as always, like to give you both the last word. So I don't know if you want to discuss who would like to have the last word first. It's up to you, gentlemen. Who wants to go first? Go on, Duncan. Off you go. Where do you start? Goodness sake. Um, I I think we have entered into um, a halfway house where the NHS needs to define very carefully its future, and that that will undoubtedly have a component of uh, technology and may may be a very significant component of technology in terms of backing up. But uh, I, I, I absolutely committed to the idea that the, the health service as it is currently run in terms of big bricks and mortar, big hospitals, huge university-associated hospitals, is not providing the level of care, the locality of care uh, that we, the community, needs. And I think that we need to seriously look at the scale of operations and how we refocus the care system in terms of providing seamless, localised care that addresses local problems. And that is a huge discussion on its own merit, on on its own terms. And I think, you know, we could probably spend an afternoon discussing that. Um, But I think we are spending vast amounts of money on vast systems that are not delivering. And I'm open to discussing in more detail, how we could overcome those problems. Well, I'm going to look yeah, forward well, to that, Dr. Duncan-White. <laughs> Thank you. Roy, your last word. Well, I, well, I, I mean, I, th- I feel that our discussion, uh, the time's flown by. I've just looked and seen how long we've been gassing. Um, I think the, uh, the time's flown. I think what this says is that, that this requires a part two, actually, <laughs> for us to carry on the conversation from here. Uh, and I'd be delighted to do it. I mean, there are seven words that always I use on these occasions, and it's stop people getting sick in the first place. Seven words, okay, which is uh, which is the only way, really, we're going to come through this. And, and a lot of that is vested in the kind of healthcare system that I think we've left behind, and, and a lot of it is vested in what... Uh, Duncan has so eloquently described with his sort of intermediate, the polyclinic approach, which seems to me the only way. Divesting from uh, from hospitals uh, is not an easy thing because of the, the, the huge cost of their overheads and how we keep them going. And it's the same wherever you are in the world. The money is soaked up in the, in the systems in secondary care. And the big difficulty yep. is trying to find how you fund primary care. One way to do it, which is for a discussion for another day, is you let primary care run secondary care. Uh, and then you might see uh, yep. uh, the, the, weight of, uh, the weight of funding change. I mean, just uh, for a factual point, we get 93% of first contacts in the NHS, that's through GPs, um, for less than 11% of the total budget, which is bonkers, really, when you think about the seven letters. Uh, the seven words stop people getting sick in the first place change the fulcrum point of care and i'm looking forward to part two (laughs) gentlemen give me the uniform build it and they (laughs) will come and i'm looking forward to part two as well dr duncan white roy lilly from uk column thank you and goodbye